Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Hollywood has produced many films that touch on aspects of history, politics, and law. In their book, The United States Constitution and Film, Part of Our National Culture, Eric T. Casper and Quentin D. Verger review many films that relate to the Constitution. From the Miranda case and Dirty Harry to Network and Issues of Freedom of the Press, they examine how movies handle the legal issues that are part of the stories. Welcome, Eric and Quentin. Hi, Eric. Hi, Quentin. Hello. Hi. First off, thanks for joining me. Um, I don't remember now where I saw your book first. Uh, I get a lot of listings of books, obviously, film-related, and so... Um, I'm not sure exactly where I've seen, where I saw it first, but as soon as I saw the title, The United States Constitution and Film, Part of Our National Culture, there was no question that I wanted to talk to you, so I'm glad we were able to to find that time. So, the first thing I like to do often is to give authors a chance to give me a little bit of their background because it helps uh, get a better sense of what led you to this particular um project. So I guess we'll start with Eric. So you're in Wisconsin and you both uh, teach for the same institution, although if I read right, it's not the same location. So you're welcome to go into there. So what uh, is your background, especially as it might have related to get you to this project? Sure. Well, uh, I originally got my undergraduate degree at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire uh, I then went to uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, where I uh, got my master's degree in political science, uh, PhD in political science, and then just because I'm a glutton for punishment, I got a law degree there as well, and I uh, started teaching uh, in the University of Wisconsin colleges in 2007, and uh, it was a few years after that that uh, Quentin uh, began teaching in the colleges as well. And so I guess I'll, I'll let him talk a little bit about his background before we talk about how we started on this project together. 
Sure. Uh, I'm from Lubbock, Texas originally, and I received my bachelor's and master's in English uh, from Texas Tech. And there I studied uh, literature and languages. And then I went to the University of South Florida, uh, where I received my PhD in English. Uh, I've been teaching film classes since 2010, and uh, been writing in terms of pop culture since about that time as well. So my focus is on rhetoric and composition in terms of my degree, but I have a uh, additional interest in pop culture and in film, and that in terms of an academic vantage point is uh, where I sort of have come from in terms of uh, this project. Eric and I, beginning in about 2013, started teaching a film class together. Uh, and the film class was not on the Constitution as a whole, but on the criminal justice system. And it was an interdisciplinary course. I taught the film analysis perspective, and Eric taught the uh, legal and constitutional perspective of that. And so we were co-teachers among the same cohort of students, and we showed them ways of looking at films that were both uh, in terms of film analysis and in terms of the law and how those things intersect. And it was really from that experience that uh, the origins of this project started. And Eric, do you want to take it from there? Yeah. Um, and from us teaching that course together, we ended up um, writing a paper uh, on the, um, the U.S. presidency as it's depicted in film. Uh, and we presented that at the uh, Midwest Popular Culture Association Conference uh, a few years ago. And, uh, you know, from there, between what we had taught in terms of the criminal justice system and particularly the rights of the criminally accused in our film class and what we had in terms of our, our uh, paper about the U.S. presidency and the powers of the presidency, uh, depicted in film, uh, we thought we could put together a volume here on the different aspects of the Constitution that uh, come up in films, either stuff that's uh, very much in the background or constitutional questions that can be uh, very central to the, the focus of a film. Well, that's good because uh, I think it sounds like you started at a, at a good spot with the presidency because that's obviously the most obvious Thing, but then you built out as, as we've talked uh, already. Uh, there's tw there's twelve chapters to the book, and you devote a chapter to the first three chapters are obvious: Congress, presidency, and courts. And then you start to get into some of the different amendments, almost a good number of them, the Bill of Rights. Although you do get into uh, other amendments later on as as we go through it. So, how did you? Uh, since you're the film person, Quentin, how did you start to develop these lists? Or I'm assuming these are all films you've seen or, 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 or at least heard about. So where did the lists start to come up and, and how did you sort of work on the project to get so many films? Well, uh, Eric and I developed that list together and we created a Google document and there was a lot of preparatory work to try to figure out exactly how we were going to write this book in terms of scope. Were we going to try to talk about the entire Constitution? We were, were we only going to talk about 
certain uh, certain parts. And then in terms of films, one of the things we noticed was that certain elements of the Constitution, there's just a, uh, a glut, an overflowing of films. And the most difficult thing to do was to figure out which ones not to talk about. So uh, the chapter having to do with the presidency, uh, probably the chapter having to do with the Second Amendment, um, the chapter, def both of the chapters having to do with the First Amendment, there were just so many films that between Eric and I, we had to decide which are the most important films, which are the films that uh, spur the most debate, that create the most discussion, and that are as historically relevant. Um, and then with other chapters, like the chapter on the right to vote, um, and the Supreme Court chapter as well, uh, we had sort of the opposite problem, right? There were a far more limited number of films, and uh, we had to do some research and figure out which films could we uh, talk about. Now, at the beginning of this project, both Eric and I had seen an enormous number of films that ultimately made it in our book, but through the writing of this project, uh, both he and I uh, really sort of improved and expanded on our film canon of knowledge, right? Uh, and part of what made this project so uh, informative and frankly fun for the both of us is it gave us an opportunity to see films that either we hadn't seen before but we knew about or uh, to explore cinema we hadn't uh, had, hadn't considered yet. But it was really difficult in terms of writing this book to think in terms of scope. What films go into the book? What are left out? And it was that was really the most difficult thing about cultivating that list. Uh, Eric, would you agree? Or? Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I would add is with regard to the actual design, <clears throat> the structure of the book, um, because for the last few years, I've actually served as the director of the Center for Constitutional Studies at UW-Eau Claire. And uh, for the past several years there, my, my teaching load has, has been mostly classes about the, the U.S. Constitution. And so, I, you know, uh, some of this actually came out of me and, 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 and the teaching that I've done in terms of those courses, in terms of the actual ordering of the chapters and how we, we ended up designing the chapters. Um, it actually follows pretty well what I tend to have in my survey course of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, I start out with powers of government and then move on to rights and kind of moving more or less, uh, you know, through the, the, the Bill of Rights as, as they're numbered in order. <clears throat> Obviously, we don't have time to talk about all the, all the amendments and, and all the rights uh, or even all the, all the powers. Uh, but trying to hit those big points in terms of the different different parts of the federal government and and separation of powers questions followed by rights in the Bill of Rights and then and then rights that show up later in in, in subsequent amendments. Um, and so I mean it kind of has a I think a natural flow to it in terms of the way that a course that would be just on the Constitution is taught. Um, but here you get the added bonus of learning about all these films. And um, within these individual chapters then, um, we ended up, for the most part, moving through chronologically in terms of uh, films um, and, and when they were released. 
we we shake things up a little bit, especially if there's historical films uh, where a more modern historical film um, about someone uh, long ago in the past. We might talk about that film a little bit earlier in the chapter, uh, but otherwise we, we tend to move chronologically in terms of film release dates within each chapter. And then there were uh, chapters that ultimately didn't make the final cut, mostly because of the fact that uh, we were already writing so much about the chapters uh, that ultimately made it into the book. For instance, we had originally planned to include a chapter on prohibition, and that would have included uh, such films as The Untouchables and Miller's Crossing. Uh, but there's just simply so much to talk about uh, that we uh, erred on the side of um, giving a fuller treatment to the parts of the Constitution that we uh, could talk about. One of the things I noticed is that it's not just list. I mean, it may seem, you know, you mentioned specific films in general, but then for many of the films, you make sure to give an in-depth analysis, particularly of the constitutional aspects. Because one of the things I noted as I, as I read through is that some of the m- movies you brought up, at first glance, you would say, what does that have to do with the Constitution? Especially if you just heard the title, but then the way you broke it down, some of the more obvious ones like Dirty Harry where obviously there are there are constitutional aspects of it so you were even it was easy to fit that into its slot but you also clearly showed um how each one fit into your into your thesis now one of the things i wanted to mention because this was an important part of your introduction is the idea of how people tend to learn about things just from what they see on movies and television and that one of the reasons you were doing this was to show how much is out there that affects any of you know our knowledge of the constitution was it your feeling or your experience and let's start with eric on this one um whether people just plainly misunderstand aspects of the constitution and it's often because of the films they see well, you know, a, a lot of films actually, I mean, and I would say probably most films do a pretty good job in terms of accurately portraying either what's in the constitutional text or what the Supreme Court has interpreted. Um, and now there's always this aspect of um, how representative might an example be that's given in a, in a film. For instance, if you've got a film, uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, Dirty Harry. Where within the film, I mean, it, it gives a particular portrayal about uh, the rights of the accused. And it's a commentary on, at the time in the early 1970s, the reaction to uh, the, uh, the Warren Court's decisions um, pro- more, more uh, broadly protecting the rights of the accused. And so, you know, because of that, the story goes down a certain path and wants to basically say, here, here's some of the downsides uh, of protecting the rights of the accused that much. Um, but in doing so, um, a lot of these a lot of these films that do that sort of thing do have a, a pretty accurate portrayal of what the state of the law is. Uh, now, of course, there are exceptions to that. Um, probably the the I, I don't know if I want to call it the, the worst example or the best example in this case, uh, but Double Jeopardy, uh, the, the film that was released in 1999. Uh, starring uh, Ashley Judd, and it also had uh, Tommy Lee Jones. Um, and she ends up, uh, or basically her, her husband, 
frames her for murder, uh, for his own murder, and then he disappears. Um, she gets convicted, and she's serving time in prison. And a disbarred attorney who is also serving time in prison um, has a conversation with Ashley Judd's character after Ashley Judd finds out that, well, actually, her husband may, in fact, be alive. And then he, he framed her to be there. And this, uh, this other character is basically trying to tell her that, look, if you get out of here, you can track him down and you can kill him. And, you know, they can't convict you for his murder again because that's what the double jeopardy clause says. And in fact, it's not what it says and it's not what it means um, because it, it would be a separate incident, a separate uh, occurrence, a separate violation of the law. And so it wouldn't be double jeopardy. Um, you know, in that situation, somebody could get time served or it could be considered mitigating circumstances. But constitutionally, that second uh, prosecution wouldn't be barred by the Constitution. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes we run into films like that. But, you know, for the most part, um, they are trying to give a pretty accurate portrayal. And I think most of these films do get decent advice as far as what the Constitution requires or how the Supreme Court has interpreted it. Um, I'll just sort of add to that. Uh, a lot of times what these films will do is they will spur debate. Uh, so they'll give people a sense of what the Constitution allows, for instance, in terms of the presidency. Uh, but then within that, there is uh, debate, uh, debate among legal scholars, among the general public, as to how best to interpret the Constitution uh, and to apply it. So one such film would be Lincoln, uh, which came out in 2012. Uh, this is the one starring Daniel Day-Lewis as Abraham Lincoln. And in the film, there is definitely an emphasis as on the president as someone who has enormous executive power, uh, there is a sort of valoration and glorification of Lincoln, not just as someone with uh, virtue or high standards, but someone who knows the power he has within the presidency and exercises that. There's a scene where he's talking to his cabinet and he pounds on the table and he says, I am the president clothed in enormous power. And then he says, procure me these votes. And the whole scene sort of sort of evokes a sense of not just that this is what Lincoln wants, but he knows the power he has as president to, uh, to make that happen. At the time that film came out, there was a ongoing conversation, for, in, for instance, about what role executive authority had in terms of, um, I'm sorry, let me just, I apologize. At the time that film came out, there was a lot of debate in the news about executive power and about presidential power. And that film helped to uh, spur that debate on and create uh, a conversation about the appropriate use of presidential power in the 21st century. And I don't know, Eric, do you want to add to that? Yeah, well, the other thing I, I would throw out there is that the film itself, um, as, as we're looking at the, um, the latter stages of the Civil War and, and of course, talking about a, a completely separate issues um, constitutionally in terms of 
slavery and the 13th Amendment and the amendment uh, process even. Um, but uh, going back to that period, kind of from, from the middle to, to the later stages of the Civil War, uh, this notion of a, a very empowered presidency and even the Supreme Court in, in the prize cases uh, interpreting presidential power, presidential war power quite broadly, and really the, the first instance of the Supreme Court interpreting the president's war power occurs during the Civil War. And they give a broad reading to it, basically saying that um, Lincoln had the power to blockade southern ports and to mobilize the Union Army and to take certain actions before Congress declared war, because Congress wasn't in session when the secession of the southern states was taking place. Uh, and so the Supreme Court is basically deferring to the president saying, look, just because Congress didn't say a war officially began doesn't mean that war can't occur and the president has to be able to take action accordingly. So it's actually an interesting historical moment with that film as well, because it's really the first Supreme Court case that gives this uh, broader and more expansive view to presidential powers under Article Two of the Constitution. And I know that uh, over time, that whole issue of presidential power has, has been particularly important in general, but then also in film and as we get into even more recent times in the 70s, particularly right around you know Watergate and Vietnam, where Congress, at least in some ways, decides to reach back out and try to gain a little bit more control on their own. And so we have the War Powers Act and then some of the other investigations to try to give uh, to to try to even the, to balance it out a little bit more because there's no question that uh, most people these days are used to the concept of a strong president and um, so it's not a surprise that they're mentioned that the most films that have a president in them uh, he's always presented in that in that way and and sometimes for good and sometimes for bad right, right. I mean, um, but yeah I mean the the, the president and I think Quentin you would agree with that, I mean the president is uh, typically going to be portrayed, and there's some exceptions to this with with, uh, with noteworthy reasons why, but typically the president's going to be uh, portrayed as powerful, uh, in part because I think rhetorically that's, I mean, that, that's a useful device, uh, but also because, I mean, it does reflect reality uh, in, in the modern era, especially in the nuclear age, um, you know, even with some attempts by Congress notwithstanding to rein in that power, uh, the, I mean, the, the modern president does exercise a lot of authority. And so whether it's being used in a film uh, to demonstrate that we need a powerful president to, you know, uh, root out terrorism or to deal with foreign adversaries or, or these sorts of things. Or on the other hand, talking about the dangers of a powerful president, uh, you know, how the, the American people could be targeted by the president or films that get into conspiracy theory uh, types of issues where the president is is involved in, in some nefarious Plot to do something, um, you know. Either way, um, I mean, all those films, again, whether they're saying having a powerful president is good or bad, they're still reflecting the reality that the presidency has a, a sizable amount of authority to it. Yes, I would agree with all of that. You know, when you're making a film about the presidency, and the president is most likely going to be the main character, usually the protagonist, you're going to need to put a lot of agency or control in his hands just for narrative reasons. Uh, so it just so happens from that point of view that the president is going to be the main actor in the film and is going to be seen as the person moving the plot along uh, in 
encountering adversaries and overcoming those adversaries. Moreover, culturally, we see the presidency uh, as a place where uh, someone can bring redemption to the nation. I think that as a culture, we tend to see the president as a type of uh, salvation figure, uh, a sort of Moses leading us out of the wilderness. And uh, that connects to films as well. The president is the hero of the film. The president is the one who's going to deliver us from what evil uh, the film starts with, whatever problems uh, are encountered at the beginning of the film. And so with the exception of when they're trying to show some sort of uh, danger in the presidency, and even then, there's always or there's often emphasis on either the good or the bad side of the power of the presidency. And and I would just add to that. <clears throat> I mean, obviously, in, in, as we're doing this right now, there's this question over the uh, emergency powers of President Trump and uh, whether or not uh, Congress is going to try to limit um, the uh, the president in his decision to take funds that Congress had allocated to. The military and move them to uh, to be used to, to build a, a border wall, and that debate is really tied up in this. I mean, this this ongoing struggle between, on the one hand, Congress's Article One powers as the legislature, and then the president's Article Two powers as the executive. And uh, I mean, those debates go back to the Constitutional Convention, what the proper role of those two institutions are. Um, you know, they they come up in you know historically, you know, during the the period of. Thomas Jefferson and making the Louisiana Purchase to obviously during the Civil War, uh, questions of war powers during World War II and during the Cold War and right up through, you know, during the, the war on terrorism and into more contemporary questions that we're looking at. So you know, the fact that this culturally has been I and mean, legally and politically has has been an unresolved question where the line is between what the president can do and, and what is really congressional power. It's no surprise that that's a, a frequent issue that comes up in, in films that talk about the presidency as well. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off i note that uh some of the more current now this is this is on the print side although many films uh, obviously are based on books and and i'm thinking of absolute power is the most obvious one where the president in books more current books it's often a conspiracy of some sort as you mentioned 
or the pe- the president is quote unquote evil, but gets out. And how do you uh, deal with that? So that's on a more, it's it's less what is considered normal for a president and and more abnormal. Um, and so I just feel like uh, these days that that whole issue of of possible conspiracies has taken over many aspects of at least fictional films that uh, and books more importantly that 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 feature the president. It, is this something or and and a number of examples you even mentioned in your book related to that, including clear and present danger, is one that I can think of that the president appears in there, but it's it there is a whole issue related to conspiracies and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that definitely, as you as you had mentioned earlier, a lot of that stems from uh, Watergate and post Watergate's um, and you know reflecting reality um, in terms of the the involvement of an actual president in 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 something along those lines. Um, it helps to spur on these types of st- stories. I think it's also a reflection of where we are in terms of media and in terms of the polarization of media, um, that it's, uh, when we're talking about news media in particular, uh, as well as social media, uh, <clears throat> where it's it, we've gotten this polarization, not only there, but in American politics generally. And so there's, there's a, a, a lot of sense of, if uh, one is is in the media and they're not the media that's friendly to the current occupant of the White House, whoever that is, um, that there is uh, there is a greater likelihood that there are going to be news stories or opinion pieces um, that are raising questions about all sorts of things from you know everything going on with uh, President Trump right now related to uh, Russian interference in 2016 election. To uh, questions that were raised by other media sources about uh, President Obama's birth certificate and where he was actually born, to going back to uh, questions about Whitewater and President Clinton, um, and so we we have a, a lot of these types of stories that are in the media, and so you know I think that becomes a natural springboard for those same sorts of questions to be raised in um, in in films. But again, this notion of a, a, a more partisan press uh, attacking whoever is in the White House at the moment or attacking whoever is running for president of, of the other party. Um, that's nothing new. I mean, that goes back to a very, very early in the Republic. And although we, we had kind of, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of kind of a post-World War II, uh, especially during the Cold War, uh, sentiment of, um, you know, the, the media didn't act that way and for the most part didn't behave in, in that in that way um, that's really uh, not the historical norm uh, throughout much of American history and so in that sense we're, we're returning to the norm that we used to have which helps to fuel this uh, that's not necessarily a good thing um, but it, it also does and it shouldn't be surprising given that historically this was much more so the case if you go back 150, 200 years. Right. They got newspapers that were specifically, a city might have multiple newspapers and one is going to be on one side, most likely, which is where their names often come from. If you listen to the name of, think of various newspapers that many might not exist anymore, they often had a slant towards one party or the other. And that was just part of their, their, um, their, the way they did business. Well, you had mentioned a lot of Films about the presidency don't really feature the president as the central character or somewhat 
are connected to a type of conspiracy. I think a lot of films like that uh, sort of deal with not so much the presidency, but the executive branch and what um, in the last couple of years people have referred to as the deep state. So films like the Mission Impossible series, the Born Supremacy series, Enemy of the State, which was a uh, 90s film starring Gene Hackman and Will Smith, or uh, recently in the last 10 years, there's, there's been films on Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. All of those films are in a sense about the presidency, but they're not about the presidency themselves. They're about the larger bureaucratic state uh, that is largely housed within the executive branch. And many of those uh, films address the issue of whether or not that executive branch has become too unwieldy, too powerful, but instead of embodying that power within one person, like the film Lincoln does, or the film Absolute Power does, they uh, address it more within uh, the sense of what has this branch become and how uh, has the power of the executive become a systemic problem. And so, for, exa for example, in many ways, Enemy of the State in the 90s sort of presages uh, the conversations we have had for the last seven years or so or eight years or so about the surveillance state with Edward Snowden. Uh, and I don't know if I would call, well, many of those are sort of conspiracy films, but they definitely are less about the president than about the uh, federal bureaucracy, much of which is housed within the executive branch. Right, including most intelligence functions. Well, I, I'm sorry. I, no, I, I was just going to add um, this, uh, the, the, the tension that's there uh, between the press and the presidency um, I mean, that comes up in uh, several noteworthy films as well. And um, and it, even given the fact that there's there's a partisanship that occurs in the press, um, I mean, that, that shouldn't negate the fact also that I mean, there can still be good investigative journalism. There, there can still be good work done by the press. And there is good work done by the press to, to uncover these sorts of things. Um, and the films that do that well, like All the President's Men, in the 1970s, uh, or more recently, just a couple of years ago with the Post, um, you know, whether it's either with all the president's men looking at Watergate or the Post um, looking at the Pentagon Papers, um, you have films that, that talk about that natural tension that's there, and also that uh, discuss or, or put on display for us the importance of the First Amendment and the freedom of the press protecting the right of the media to go out there and, and to uh, do its job in terms of investigating what the executive branch is doing. Um, and uh, although there, there are some films historically, especially that question the role of the press uh, in doing some of these things, um, for the most part, I mean, there's a very positive portrayal of the press, and I think rightfully so, in terms of doing its job to expose these, these sorts of secrets or uh, the, these sorts of issues to the public so that the public can be better informed. And there's also, as we talk about in the book, there's also a natural connection here between uh, filmmakers in Hollywood and those who are in the press. And I think that's also one of the reasons why, you know, film, I mean, they're, they're, they're all doing 
either uh, some sort of expressive work or some sort of work that is uh, getting ideas out to the to the public, information out to the public. And so that kind of goes hand in hand that you would expect for the most part. Hollywood is, is going to have a positive portrayal of uh, the media because they're they're both protected by and then they both tend to uh, you know, envelop themselves in uh, the, the First Amendment and, and what that represents. So let's back up to the pre. I mean, obviously, as I mentioned, your first three chapters are are devoted to the three branches, and we've been mostly talking about the presidency. I want to talk a little bit about the Congress because it actually is also featured in Lincoln, uh, and so Congress. One of the things I, I I didn't know there were as many films that featured Congress. That was the thing that once you I started reading the titles, is oh yeah. So I was a little bit uh, surprised, but in a good way. Uh, what's have we seen that is Congress being as well, uh, generally speaking, portrayed as we've been talking about with uh, some of the other aspects of the Constitution? Well, I think you know with, with Congress, um, you know, part of the issue is you, you've got an institution of. 535 voting members, and so it, it's hard to really center on individual members of Congress or, or, or center on the institution as a whole the way you can with the presidency. Um, but there is, and, and there has been for quite some time, um, there, there's there's been a tension in terms of the public's view of Congress versus the view of their own representative in Congress. And I think that that plays into why Congress gets portrayed in a, a bit more of a mixed way in films than than the presidency does, which tends to be more positive, um, because obviously if if we have high reelection rates, which we do, and it's been the case for quite some time, um, then individual members of Congress are popular with their own districts or in their own states, um, and the issue becomes then the popularity of the institution as a whole, which individual members will run against when it's election time and which, um, you know, the, the presidents, uh, especially if Congress is not controlled by the president's party, they will will talk uh, uh, against. And, you know, this leads and, and the fact that Congress oftentimes doesn't do a whole lot. Right. And it's difficult to get legislation passed. And so there typically isn't a lot that gets passed. And so the institution tends to have relatively low public approval. Um, but some of that is, I mean, is is unfair. I mean, the reason Congress works the way it does is because constitutionally it's set up that way. It's set up to be inefficient. It's set up to not get a lot of stuff done. Right. That's why it's you know it's broken into two chambers and why you need to get the president's signature. Otherwise, you have to get super majorities to uh, override legislation. But I think that public sentiment about you know the the popularity of Congress helps to feed into these narratives in film, uh, where they get this much more mixed portrayal, even in a film like, uh, for instance, Charlie Wilson's War, where here you have Congress under the w- with the leadership of Charlie Wilson doing some really good things um, to bring an end to what's going on in Afghanistan at the time and to, and to help uh, those who are fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan, uh, ultimately playing a major role in or at least a significant role in ending the Cold War. Um, but even that film says, look, I mean, Congress still couldn't get its act together afterwards. And it's because we didn't uh, pass 
uh, bills that could help do funding for um, uh, to help uh, rehabilitate the region uh, and, and, and to rebuild it after the war that helps give rise to the Taliban and helps give rise to Al-Qaeda. And so it's an instance of, well, even when Congress is doing some things right, they still screw things up in the end. Right. And I think that's that's a, a popular narrative that we tend to see in these types of films. I think that with um, just to bounce off of that, uh, there is a tradition in these films of showing a candidate or a elected official with a good heart or, or perhaps at least good intentions, but who ultimately runs up against so many obstacles that they fail. So uh, Charlie Wilson's War is one. Another one is The Candidate, starring Robert Redford. Now, that's more about running for office, but the implications towards the end of that film are after uh, Redford's character gets elected, um, I believe it's his character that says, what now or what next, right? Uh, There's a sense of it's one thing to have good intentions. It's one thing to try, but the inertia and the bureaucratic mechanisms of uh, the House or the Senate will prevent change oftentimes from happening. Uh, So there's that tension between the, there's that tension between the intentions of the individual and the uh, pressures pushing back from the institution. And of course, the other aspect of Congress that does get featured in films is the hearings part, the investiga- the investigations that Congress does. And the, and the most obvious one I can think of is the is the crime committee uh, in Godfather Part Two, where it's pretty obvious this is a congressional committee, and and so uh, we do see Congress in that role, where they are often more likely to be presented in a more favorable tone because. They're actually doing something, right? And and especially in that film, they're out they're out to get the bad guys, right? Uh, although you know, obviously the uh, the, the character um, that that Al Pacino is is playing in that film, I mean, it's it's also the the star of, of the film, and so it, it has its own complications to it. But um, but yeah, that that's an instance where Congress is exercising uh, actually not. Uh, some sort of enumerated or explicit power that it has on the Constitution, but its investigatory function, the, those types of hearings, uh, that's uh, was generally considered one of Congress's implied powers because it needs to be able to hold hearings to gather evidence and information in order to pass laws. Um, and so that's, and again, there, there, there aren't a ton of films that focus on that aspect of Congress, um, but that, that film, The Godfather Part Two, does it really well uh, in terms of not only showing the sorts of things that can happen in those hearings um, and, and giving you some examples of that, uh, but also demonstrating uh, the you know that these these uh, the, the witnesses who come into these uh, hearings are required to testify under oath and that they can be held in contempt or they can be um, prosecuted for perjury uh, if they if they fail to answer questions or they fail to answer questions truthfully. Um, and then also the politics behind it, right? The, the grandstanding aspect that can go on, um, which is very common in these hearings, right? Where, again, there's a specific constitutional function these hearings fulfill, but then politically, besides actually gathering evidence, it's an opportunity for a member of Congress on TV in front of a live audience um, across the country 
to be able to make a, a political point or to show how angry and upset they are about something and to show their their you know and just just how they're not going to stand for this sort of thing anymore. Uh, and so there's a political theater that goes along with that as well. And that actually comes out in Godfather Part Two because the the character who ends at the the Nevada senator who we see at the beginning. And then at the end, is in this hearings, he has to leave, but he has to get up and make this nice statement about Italians are great people, and you know we shouldn't take use this as a way to to be against Italians. So you see the grandstanding right there, and the fact that you know that and again, not a lot of films would would have that portrayal as a central part of the plot, uh, but I think it's also noteworthy that. That film released in 1974. I mean, this is right when the country is in the midst of the, all the Watergate hearings, and so I mean, it was something that an audience would be prepared for and would say, "Oh, that that's an appropriate thing." I would expect that uh, to be something that Congress would do. And it was at a time when Congress, in fact, at least in that aspect of uh, of its constitutional role, was being very active in terms of holding hearings on major questions uh, that that were important to the public. Although it's fair to point out that that Nevada senator uh, is also portrayed as corrupt and uh, in a very sort of negative light throughout the film. So uh, the film is portraying the, the power of the legislative branch to investigate, but at the same time uh, putting a dark light or dark spin on the intentions of the senator who's featured. Uh, and that, in many ways, is also representative of the post-Watergate era in terms of how uh, films represent the government. Uh, after Watergate, there was definitely a darker turn towards the representation of the federal government in film. So. As we said, the, then the, the later chapters in the book are either devoted to a single amendment or a combination of amendments. And of course, there's so many, the f chapter on freedom of, of religion and from religion, and then of course, freedom of speech and press, and so on. The one I wanted to really talk about is the uh, the one that you talk about, it comes from your introduction, actually, and, that's, and we've already touched on it, and that's the, what came through as part of the Miranda decision, which of course also has a court uh, thing to it. So can you briefly, obviously the Miranda decision was important, but how did it start to appear in films? Yeah, well, it's there, there's a, a, a bit of a, as we talked about earlier, a bit of a backlash that comes up with, with that decision in particular in Dirty Harry uh, in 1971. Uh, and it's it's at a time when the Warren Court decisions and and the Miranda decision being kind of the high water mark of uh, those uh, decisions on the rights of the accused, when that was under uh, some pretty significant public scrutiny. Um, and a lot of that stems from uh, not just um, you know groups like the John Birch Society and others uh, who uh, were, uh, they, I mean, they, 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 they went on campaigns as far as uh, trying to convince Congress to impeach Earl Warren, for instance. Um, but by the time you get to the 1968 presidential election, um, you have uh, Richard Nixon, when he's running for the White House, uh, running this uh, law and order campaign and saying, look, you know, we need to appoint justices to the U.S. Supreme Court who are not going to just turn criminals loose on society. Right. 
And although the the idea of a president running against the Supreme Court is nothing new, and it happens just about every four years, where you know the president is part of what presidents campaign on is, look, if I'm elected, I'm going to appoint people to the Supreme Court who are like me and the way I think. Uh, so it'll change the course of of how the the Constitution and how the law is interpreted. Um, so that's that's nothing new, and and it actually goes back much farther than than President Nixon, uh, but. The fact that within a few years he made four appointments to the court, it also was a, a point in U.S. history where the Supreme Court started to shift on some of these questions, particularly on the rights of the criminally accused. And so this film becomes a way not only of um, not only of expressing a particular view about the way the rights of the accused should be interpreted, uh, but also the the film. It, it kind of gives us uh, a, a bit of a, a premonition or, or a bit of a, 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 an understanding of the direction the court's going to go in. Because as we talked about in the book, um, after 1971, uh, you have, uh, over the course of about the next 10 to 15 years, you have several decisions which uh, would have allowed the admission of evidence that it would have need, needed to have been excluded. Uh, in Dirty Harry from from being able to be admitted in court. Um, and so I think you, you have that film there, not only as a commentary, a particular viewpoint on the Constitution and what the Supreme Court has interpreted, but also it kind of leads the way to uh, a, a more, uh, in terms of the, the politics of the court, a direction that they go in uh, where they start to find exceptions to some of these major war and court rulings. Within Dirty Harry, uh, one of the interesting things that you see is a lot of low-key lighting, a lot of dark lighting, which creates an ominous mood. Uh, there are many ways in which uh, the film evokes a sense of frustration and negativity towards uh, the ability of law enforcement to carry out their job. Uh, and throughout the film, we see ways in which Callahan, uh, the character played... Um, Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood, yeah. Uh, throughout the film, we see a variety of ways in which Callahan, the character played by Clint Eastwood, is frustrated in his attempts to either catch Scorpio, the serial killer, or uh, in some other way execute his job. And so this is a sort of a larger motif, a larger theme throughout the film. And the Miranda element of the film uh, is part of that larger theme throughout the film. And by the end of the film, uh, Callahan is so frustrated, uh, he just simply seems to quit. Right. He he's he has in some ways given up uh, and this thematic frustration is uh, something that the Miranda scene in that film uh, reinforces and part of the overall cultural frustration that Eric was just speaking to. Yeah. And, and I would add, you know, the Miranda decision was a five to four decision by the Supreme Court. Uh, the Miranda decision, when it was released, uh, was a polarizing one amongst the public. And 
is throughout that that chapter where we talk about the rights of the accused as as they apply to interaction with police, you know, search and seizures or uh, confessions and interrogations and these sorts of things. You see that that tension in the films, right? Where there's some films, the point of the film is we have to you know vigorously protect the rights of the accused uh, against the threat of uh, what the police might do and the, the threat of us, uh, you know, living in a totalitarian state if the police have too much power. And on the other hand, there's a sizable number of films that get to this issue of, well, look, you know, the rights of the accused are protected too much. What about the rights of crime victims? Uh, what about the fact that, you know, not too many criminals can go free because of a, uh, what seems like a, 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 just a minor mistake by someone in law enforcement? And that tension that is there in those films, and you know, some filmmakers who go in one direction, some who go in the other direction, um, we see that in a few other places in terms of uh, the, the films about the Constitution. I mean, the, the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms is one uh, as an example, but and and the presidency, as we talked about, as another example, you know, as a, as a powerful president, good or bad. Um, but you know, a lot of these areas of film tend to be much more, you know, tend to be in, in the sense of. There's, there's most of the films are portraying one message, right? Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, voting rights, equal protection of the law. Those are areas where we, we tend to have films that are almost totally uh, on the side of saying, yes, these are good rights. These rights need to be protected. Um, but the, the rights of the accused um, and, and even the rights of the accused in a, in a court, right? Um, you know, right to a jury trial, right to an attorney, right? These these tend to be very popular in film as well. But the rights of the accused with respect to law enforcement, uh, there is a division there in terms of the, the two different camps of filmmakers. And and then from that, you then you've, you actually brought it up between the, obviously the, the police and then the courts and then the convicted. Um, you, you talk about that as uh, in the got a number of good examples there. Um, I wanted to also mention, bring up uh, the freedom, the chapter on freedom and the right to privacy. Uh, that chapter to me was interesting because uh, there are all kinds of issues these days, especially as it relates to privacy. And uh, were you, is that, was this a chapter you definitely felt you had to include because of issues of privacy in present in 21st century time? Yeah, well, I, I think that that's definitely the case. You know, the, the use of technology, you know, modern technology um, really raises a lot of privacy questions. Um, now, again, that's also nothing new, right? Um, you know, if you go back to uh, the 1960s, um, cats versus the United States, there's a question of putting a phone tap on a, uh, uh, on a phone booth. Uh, which I think our students today, uh, most of them have never seen a phone booth. They don't even know what that is. But, um, you know, th those I mean, those questions have been with us for a long time. Um, but Supreme Court in recent years has gotten into those issues, questions about, um, you know, if, if a GPS uh, tracking device is used on a car without a warrant, uh, the Supreme Court finding that that to be a problematic constitutionally. Um, uh, the the uh, attempts by law enforcement to unlock a, a cell phone and to access what's on there. There's there's clear Fourth Amendment implications there. The Supreme Court has found, um, and so those those sorts of issues are are renewed uh, every, anytime we have new technology. And given 
just the, the vastness of technology and how much it's integrated into our lives now. Um, I think that there was no question for us. We, ha we had to say something about films on it because there, there are uh, a number of films that get to those points, uh, whether it's, you know, films that are a little bit older in terms of, um, you know, the enemy of the state or, or you know, going back to the 1990s uh, or, you know, a film like her or, or, or some of these films about, as we talked about earlier, uh, whether it's getting into questions of, um, you know, Edward Snowden and uh, questions of what he did or questions about WikiLeaks. Right. All these questions about privacy, what truly is private, what's left anymore. Um, it's clearly it's, it's on the public's mind and it's on the minds of filmmakers as well. In terms of reproductive rights, that was an element of that chapter, too. And uh, one of the interesting observations about the way in which films treat privacy rights is when it comes to things like the government uh, and surveillance in terms of Snowden or Enemy of the State, uh, there's a far less ambiguous treatment of uh, those types of issues in film than when it comes to issues like uh, reproductive rights. Uh, and um, that, I'm uh, sure, has is in large part due to the fact that the country is so intensely divided on those issues. So if you look at the movie Juno, uh, Juno deals very sort of delicately with uh, abortion. Uh, it does it in such a way that it doesn't really tip its hand one way or the other in terms of giving a clear preference towards either the pro-choice or the pro-life movement. Ultimately in that film, Juno has to decide whether to carry the child to term. She decides to carry the child to term, but there, uh, through the film, is a treatment of abortion in such a way that it isn't stigmatized. So for viewers who are very intensely pro-life, they're going to come away from that film affirmed, whereas uh, viewers who are more pro-choice can also see something in that film that uh, reinforces their perspective. Uh, and in that chapter, we saw that sort of treatment in terms of reproductive rights, a type of ambiguity, a type of delicacy when approaching the issue, uh, a type of even-handedness in some ways. Obviously, um, these topics are going to always be around, and, and, and I think it's pretty obvious that we're going to continue to see films that feature aspects of the Constitution. So I have to ask you, even though it's not in your book because it's too new, what your thoughts are of Vice? I don't know whether you liked it or hated it, or but the con there's quite a bit of constitutional aspects to that film. As a viewer, I really loved the film Vice. So I'll just start as a viewer. I thought it was enormously clever and enormously funny. The film uh, is basically a type of satirical treatment of Dick Cheney uh, throughout his life, um, while at the same time trying to get a sense of the motivation as to um, why he made the choices he did. Uh, and I thought the film did a, a really clever job of intermixing sort of serious moments with humor. Uh, in terms of the Constitution, one of the things that we see in Vice is uh, 
what we talked about in terms of the presidential films, just a reinforcement of the the power that is vested in the presidency. Uh, Cheney, through his uh, role as vice president, uh, was able to enact uh, an enormous amount of uh, power onto the executive branch and onto the country. And um, this film, in that sense, just simply reinforces the uh, other films that comment on the enormous power of the presidency. What diff- What makes this film at least somewhat different from those films is it shows the uh, elasticity that the office of the vice presidency has. The office of the vice presidency um, actually technically only has a very limited number of powers, including tie-breaking votes in the Senate. Uh, But Cheney was able to use that office in a much more powerful and expansive way. Uh, The film also comments on his time uh, as a chief of staff, and um, as a member of Congress. And so the other thing I think that we can get out of this film is the way in which uh, if you know how to use the levers of power, a person with an enormous amount of uh, insight into that can have a disproportionate amount of control over the government. And I'll have to confess, I haven't seen the film yet, uh, so I'll, I'll refrain from commenting on the film. But uh, just to reiterate, I mean, the, the um, Dick Cheney's vice presidency was, I mean, it was uh, during a period when uh, the amount of power vested in the presidency because of actions by the president or decisions by the president uh, was on the increase. Um, uh, certainly, that was the the case. Even even in the run up to what happened um, during the the Bush presidency with 9/11, and, and how that uh, even helped to accommodate a greater role for Vice President Dick Cheney. Um, you know, if you go back to the 1990s, um, the uh, the tasks that uh, Bill Clinton gave to uh, Al Gore were certainly greater than we had seen in the past for the vice presidency, and you, you see a build up. Um, as well, if you go back to, to the 1980s between Reagan and George H.W. Bush uh, in terms of building up the, the power of the vice presidency. Um, and so it, it's certainly along those trends and, and it took it to, to a, a new higher degree in terms of vice presidential power than we had seen before. And then when Obama and Biden were elected, I remember one of the things Biden said was he was going to try to uh, create a... Uh, more rebalanced version of the vice presidency, right? So it changes from term to term and from uh, presidency to presidency. What's interesting about the film is one one of the points they make is that supposedly Biden, or excuse me, Cheney believes in there. There's a there's a legal concept that seems to indicate that they that the presidency is the most important branch of the go- of the government instead of them being three co-equal branches and it's talked about early on in the film that this is a belief and and that's goes back to uh the idea that of the differences in the separation of powers so yeah and of course if you go back to the constitutional convention with the delegates there and James Madison in particular but others uh thought is that um it would be congress 
that would always predominate. And Congress would be the, the strongest branch because it was the people's representatives from all across the country. And, and because they had the lawmaking function, I mean, that, that's, that, that was what they believed would be the case. And that's why, again, they, they break it up into two houses, why they give the president a role in the legislative process, um, because they didn't want the legislative branch to be so overpowering over the other two. Um, and of course, because of delegation of power by Congress to the executive branch over time, and, and because of um, the perceived need in the modern world for someone to act quickly, again, in the nuclear age, um, the, and, and in all honesty, because of the changes in media and how you know the, the president becomes someone who's followed around by the press um, and is very familiar to just about every American, uh, the, the role of that office has definitely grown. Uh, and in certain aspects, it's grown at the expense of Congress. We've only scratched the surface, obviously. Uh, you list, a, you, you know, you discuss so many different films, and I really think it did a great job of presenting not only what the aspects were related to the constitution of the various films, but more importantly, discussed how well they represented, or in some cases, not so well. So I really want to say that this was a, I really enjoyed this book and I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it because uh, I think people would find, will find the book quite interesting and, and, and there's a number of films now I have to go make sure I go to see some of them just so I get a better sense of, uh, of how, you know, your points of view and, and then how I see them. Uh, are you working on other things together or are you just uh, just finished this book? So you're just sort of resting for a second. Well, right now we're resting. We've tossed around some ideas about what the next stage of this research could be. But that would be maybe like in a year or two. And right now we're just uh, either pursuing other projects or talking about this one. Yeah. There's a possibility someday, you know, we might uh, do something on the Constitution and television, uh, but that's really just at the at the thought stage at this point. So, so well, like I say, I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I think, uh, as I said before, the book is very thought provoking, and just as importantly, it's a it's an interesting way to look at film, something that the average person might not even think about. So, thanks for joining me. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks to Eric and Quentin for their time and conversation. Besides being an interesting book, I think it also has relevance to political science and film classes. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.